0: When it comes to the depths of our depravity, you might not know this, but most people don't fully understand how the original sin of Adam and Eve has actually affected every aspect of our being. And we don't really realize how the curse has created the conditions by which humans have been entirely affected by the fall. Proof of my point can be found in, a re- in the recent research, which helps us to see that 81% of the people who were polled said that they believe that humankind is inherently good. Yeah, 81% of the people polled believe that humankind is inherently good. Have they not watched the news ever? Not only that, but the same people polled. Of those people, three in four believe that they themselves are fundamentally good people. That's right, 75% of the people polled believe that they are inherently good in and of themselves. And it's also interesting to note that 46% of the same respondents took it one step further as they went on to confess that they believe that they are actually better than everyone else they know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 46% of the people who took this poll think that they're better than all their friends. And listen, if this data bears out to this fellowship of faith, then almost half of the people that we know think that they are morally superior to us. Yeah, almost half of the people that we know think that they're better than us. And what these people fail to understand is, listen, none of us are good. None of us are good. No, not one. I know this because, listen... Every single person ever born on this planet, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, was born under the curse which was caused by the fall of Adam and Eve. And not only that, not only were we born under the the curse, but we've all gone on to sin ourselves. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And so if you think that you're better than the people you know, well, maybe comparatively that's true, and yet... It's still true that none of us are good. With that being the case, we can rejoice this morning in knowing this, that Christ Jesus is able to take bad people and make them good. Christ Jesus is able to consecrate those who trust in him so that we can be prepared for every good work. It's here in our text today where we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand how every born-again believer will be completely consecrated by our faith in Jesus Christ. And as we study the scriptures before us this morning, we'll begin to see, first of all, that the Christian who is being completely consecrated has received a sanctified spirit. Secondly, we'll learn that the Christian who is being completely consecrated is being sanctified in the soul. Thirdly and finally, we'll learn that the the Christian who is completely consecrated in Christ has a sanctified Soma. Now with this as the outline, let's open our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul, he's helping his audience to understand God's plan, which is to sanctify those who trust in Jesus Christ. Now, as you make your way to the fifth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, I should take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that it was in our study, uh, in our last study, when we learned about the way that Paul was encouraging the Christians there in Thessalonica to avoid making those depraved decisions that could quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. Now, here in our text today, we find Paul, he's advancing his point by helping the same believers to understand that the Lord has a plan to consecrate us completely by sanctifying our spirit. And our soul and our Soma. To explain what all this means, let's consider the way that Paul explains it here in First Thessalonians chapter five. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse twenty-three, here Paul declares now, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Here in our text today, we find Paul. He's describing the way in which the Lord sanctifies every born again believer. And we must not fail to notice that the Lord has a plan to sanctify us completely. He, his, his plan is not to sanctify us partially his plan is to sanctify us or consecrate us completely, which includes all aspects of our being, spirit, soul, and body. But Now, before we consider these three specific categories of spirit, soul, and body, we should take a moment to contemplate the meaning of the word sanctify. I should first point out that the Greek word rendered sanctify, it speaks of that which has been separated from profane things. That which is sanctified has been separated from profane things. The same Greek word speaks of those who are being purified for the purpose of the Lord. Those who are sanctified are then cleansed and consecrated for the service of our Savior. Now you might not know this, but the Lord Jesus actually prayed for our sanctification so that we might be set apart for his service. As a matter of fact, it's in John chapter 17 there, the Lord Jesus prays to God, the father on our behalf. And he cried out in this way. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Christian, listen, God, the father has a plan to sanctify those who trust in his only begotten Son. And according to the Lord Jesus, he sanctifies us according to the truth that's found in his holy word. Now with that being the case, we must not fail to see the connection between the time we spend studying the Bible and the, the way in which we're sanctified. Those who want to be sanctified and, and completely consecrated unto Christ must also spend time studying the word of God because it's by the truth of God's word that we are sanctified. Those who want to be sanctified completely must consider what the word says about humanity. That we, uh, you know, we must have an understanding of what the scriptures say about uh, our being and how we can be perfected and purified and consecrated unto the Lord what this means is that we have to understand what the Bible says about the sanctification of our spirit. And not only that, but we also have to understand what the Bible says about the sanctification of our soul. And not only that, but we also have to understand what the Bible says about the sanctification of our soma. I like the way that Paul puts it in Hebrews chapter 4. It's verse 12 where he tells us that the word of God is living, and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his Hebrew audience to understand that the Word of God is so sharp, spiritually speaking, that it's able to pierce us even to the depths of our inmost immaterial being. That's right, the word of God is able to penetrate past the joints and marrow of our physical being and it's able to, uh, able to permeate the immaterial aspect of our being as it convicts our soul and empowers our spirit. With all this in mind, I want to take some time to consider how the Lord plans to sanctify us completely, And just to be clear, that word completely, it's found there in the middle of verse 23, that word is translated from a Greek word which in this context refers to that which has all necessary and appropriate parts. That which is complete has all of the necessary and appropriate parts. The Christian who is being sanctified completely is no longer suffering from the imperfect incompleteness which was caused by the curse that came upon the world after the sin of Adam and Eve. Now to explain my point here, we should take a moment to consider the warning that the Lord presented to Adam shortly after he was created. And with this as the focus, hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians and let's turn to the book of Genesis. I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Now, as you make your way to the second chapter of Genesis, I just want to take a moment to, to remind you that our creator, he actually created Adam according to his image and, and according to his likeness. And before we all start thinking like Kenneth Copeland and, and uh, thinking that we're like, you know, that, that God looks just like us, but maybe just a little bit bigger, uh, yeah, that's incorrect. That's not what that means. We are image bearers of God, which is not to say that he looks like us the human race was created to serve as an image bearer of our infinite God. And seeing how our God has revealed himself as a triune being, then what I think this means is that he's created us as triune beings as well. Our God has revealed himself as one God who is eternally existing as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And with that being the case, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that humans are also triune beings or trichotomies, who consist of body, soul, and spirit. And while it's true that that Adam and and Annie were created as trichotomies, it's also important to understand that after the fall, uh, the curse has created the condition within humanity that, that we're all left born spiritually dead. Functionally, we are dichotomies at the moment of our conception. The reason why is because of the fall of Adam and Eve. In order to make my case, let's consider something that Moses said here in Genesis chapter 2. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 15. Here we learn that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die here in these verses we find the lord warning adam about the way that the consumption of this forbidden fruit would result in certain death even goes as far as, as say, saying here that in that day you shall surely die now if there's ever a, a strong case for not eating fruit this would be this would be it right and 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 you know many people are confused they they uh, you know think that this was like an apple and, and a lot of people call this you know the the apple that uh, that caused this fall I don't think it was an apple I you know I don't think that there's anything wrong with eating apples I, I, and nor would I be enticed by an apple to sin against God you know it's probably more like some sort of bacon fruit you know like. Like I I could imagine like there being this forbidden fruit that tastes and smells like bacon, you know, and it just sizzles on the tree. And that that would be tempting. That would be hard to, to say no to. But regardless of the specific kind of fruit that this was, the Lord said, in the day that you eat it, you will die. Did they die on that day? Yes and no. They most certainly died on that day, though they didn't physically die. I do believe that this was the moment when the process of entropy began and, you know, uh, the material world began to, to run down and, and resulting in the death of humans physically. But, but I also believe that this was the day that they spiritually died. Yeah, I believe that Adam and Eve spiritually died on that day. And, and as a result, the curse affected their offspring, resulted, resulting in children who are also born spiritually dead, including us. I believe this is the point that Paul was making in his letter to the church in Ephesians. It's actually in in Ephesians chapter 2. There he describes every unbeliever as those who are dead in trespasses and sins. Just to be clear, we must understand that the unrepentant unbeliever is alive. The unrepentant unbeliever on the planet today is physically alive. They're breathing, they're speaking, they're thinking. And yet at the same time, they also have a soul which includes their mind, their emotions, their memories. And with that being the case, it only stands to reason that if they're alive physically and if they're alive soulishly, then how is it that they're dead? Well, I believe that they're dead spiritually, that their spirit is dead. The Lord created humans to bear the image and the likeness of our triune God and therefore we were uh, created as trichotomies comprised of three distinct parts, that being the body, the soul, and the spirit. However, the curse which was caused by the original sin of Adam and Eve has affected all of their offspring including us and as a result we're born spiritually dead which leaves every person as functioning dichotomies who are incomplete because we're supposed to be trichotomies. And with that being the case, we must be born of the Spirit in order to escape the curse of original sin that has left us incomplete. According to Jesus, the simple solution for this situation, well, it's to become believers who are born of the Spirit. I like the way that the Lord Jesus explains this in John chapter 3. It's there where he declares, Most assuredly, I say to you, From this, we can see that the natural birth of every baby is insufficient for entering the kingdom of God. The reason why is because the natural offspring of Adam and Eve are incomplete dichotomies made up of body and soul with a dead spirit. That being the case, the Lord Jesus commands us to be born again. We not only need to be born naturally of water, so to speak, but we also have to be born supernaturally by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's at that moment when we are made complete in Christ as we become the triune beings that we're supposed to be. In this way, we become proper image bearers of God. And not only that, but we become consecrated Christians who are able to serve our Savior according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And to to further grasp the importance of being born again, we should consider something that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. So continue holding your place there in 1 Thessalonians, and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As you make your way to the 8th chapter of Romans... I just want to take a moment to remind you that those who trust in Jesus Christ have received the washing of regeneration. We've received the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And what this means is that our spirit, which was dead in sins and trespasses, has now been regenerated by faith in Jesus Christ. At the same point in time, the Holy Spirit of God then takes up residence within the body of the believer. And in this way, our spiritual connection with God is established as the Spirit of God begins to empower us to live our lives for the Lord. I want to consider the way that Paul describes this here in Romans chapter 8. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 14. Here Paul declares, As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Here in these verses, we find Paul helping his audience to understand that the born-again believer has not only received a rejuvenated spirit, which is able to connect with the Spirit of the living God, but we've also become the adopted children of God. And as such, we're able to now follow the leading of the Holy Spirit who now dwells within us. And in this way, the Holy Spirit continues to consecrate every Christian as he leads us on the path of righteousness. Now, this brings us to our second point, because listen, the Christian who is being completely consecrated has not only received a sanctified spirit by faith in Jesus Christ but we are also being sanctified in the depths of our soul as we continue to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And with this as our focus, I want to make our way back now to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Here we find Paul. He's describing the complete consecration of every Christian. And with that, I want to look again at verse 23 because here uh, Paul goes on to declare this. He says, Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul. Now, I want to stop there. I want to talk about this word soul. The soul here refers to the breath of life. Think about that. The soul is the breath of life. And listen, some of, some of your souls need more gum. But, uh, but the soul is the breath of life, and, and the soul is the vital force which animates the body. Not only that, but the soul is also equated with the immaterial heart, which includes our feelings, desires, affections, and aversions. And so within the category of the soul, we find the heart, the desires, the affections that we have, the aversions that we have. The the human soul is also made up of our mind. This includes our memories and our motivations. And while the dichotomist will insist that the soul and the spirit are just basically the same thing, I believe that this verse actually provides us with a biblical basis for believing that our soul is distinctly different from our spirit. I should also remind you about the statement that Paul made in Hebrews chapter 4. It's there again where Paul assured his audience that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. But then he tells us that this word of God is able to pierce us even to the division of soul and spirit. The Word of God is able to make a distinction between the soul and the Spirit. And while I realize that there are many Bible teachers and even scholars who will insist that there's no clear distinction between the soul and the Spirit, and, and so they, they equate us to dichotomies who are just material and immaterial beings, listen, you know, the, the, the Scriptures are able to separate the difference between joints and marrow. And furthermore, the scriptures are able to make a distinction between the spirit and the soul. So, uh, you know, a, a, a human scholar might not be able to make this distinction, but the Word of God can. I'm going to go with the Word of God every time over any scholar. The scriptures provide us with a biblical basis for identifying the difference between the spirit and the soul. Case in point, I want to consider the statement that the Virgin Mary made after she discovered you know, her unplanned pregnancy. Uh, And listen, it's at that point in time when she interacts with Elizabeth that she cries out in this way. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Her soul, the Virgin Mary's soul magnified the Lord. Or, Or in other words, you know, her soul has the mental capacity for focusing in on the object of her faith. At the same time, Mary's spirit rejoiced. In other words, she spiritually worshipped her Redeemer in spirit and in truth. From this, we can see how our rejuvenated spirit helps us to worship the Lord and have a relationship with him, while the immaterial soul helps us to mentally comprehend the ministry and magnificence of our Messiah. Now, I could spend the rest of our time today using the Bible to define a difference between the spirit and the soul. Uh, And and so, uh, you know, just for the sake of advancing the second point forward, I'd like to just sum it all up by helping you to understand that our spirit is the immaterial nature of the human being, which enables us to connect with the Holy Spirit of God as we worship God in spirit and truth. At the same time, the immaterial soul of every human being is that which enables us to consider and contemplate our need for the Lord Jesus Christ. The the soul is what enables us to acquire knowledge and memorize scriptures and understand how to apply it to our lives. The born-again spirit enables us to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, but our soul enables us to acquire the knowledge that we need to walk by faith with Jesus Christ and with all this in mind let's just take some time to consider how the soul of the christian is to be completely consecrated you might be interested to know that the word soul it's actually translated from the greek word psyche and just to be clear, the Greek word psyche refers to the totality of elements that form our mind, which includes the feelings and the desires and the affections and the aversions and you know, the memories and the motivations and all these sorts of things. Psyche is also the basis for the word psychology, which is the science that's focused in on the mind and the behaviors of the individual. Therefore, when we speak of the sanctification of the soul We're actually referring to the way in which the Lord is planning to purify our minds and our memories and even our motivations so that we can become his servants. Now with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that our soul is sanctified by the truth of God's word. Because remember, Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified by the truth. This is precisely the point that King Solomon was making in Proverbs chapter 2. It's verses 10 through 12 where he declares this, When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. Christian, listen. The soul of man is where we store wisdom and knowledge so that we can have the information that we need to avoid the path of the perverts. There there is an evil path that is set before us, and the person who who doesn't know better will will follow that path of perversion. But the believer who wants to be consecrated in their soul will, will acquire the knowledge that we need so that we can become wise believers who are making good decisions. And in this way, we're able to understand the path of perfection that the Lord is leading us to travel. And just to be clear about the source for this sanctifying knowledge, again, Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Where do we acquire this sanctifying knowledge from the world? You know, from, from college psychologists, you know, and, and, and secular professors and these sorts of things. You you think that our our colleges here in America are spitting out morally sound students that that become purified members of society? No, we need the word of God. We need to be sanctified by the truth which is found in the word of God. I like the way that King David explains it in the 119th Psalm. It's there in verses 9 through 11 where David says this. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In other words, those who want to be completely consecrated should spend time memorizing the word of God. And the reason why is because those who spend time memorizing the word of God will have the knowledge that they need to discern the difference between obedience and sinfulness. Those who will take the time to study the word of God will also acquire the wisdom that we need so that we can keep ourselves from engaging in all of the sinful things that could damage our soul. With this in mind, I want to remind you of the warning that Peter presented in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's there where he declares, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know, there is a war that is happening against your soul, against your heart, against your mind. There's a war that's happening. And the enemy is attempting to attack our minds so that we might not follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are carnal cravings that can keep us from being completely sanctified as we uh, move forward in our faith with our Savior. And knowing how easy it is for us to focus our minds on all of the depraved desires that still fill our hearts, We would all do well to abstain from the fleshly lusts which are at war with our soul. It's possible that some of us come to church, we start singing the praises of the Lord, and next thing you know, in our minds, we're imagining... ungodly images of things that we looked at Saturday night. And the enemy is trying to stop us from worshiping. The enemy is trying to to keep us from connecting with Christ. And we gave the enemy all the firepower they needed because of the things that we were looking at Saturday night. And you're making provision for the flesh by going and looking at those things. And then you come to church and you try to focus in on God and yet you're in this battle, this this war because you fail to abstain from the fleshly lusts which are at war with our soul. And with this as the case, uh, we need to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Christians at the church in Rome. If you would, hold your place there in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let's turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. As you make your way to the eighth chapter of Romans, I just want to take a moment to remind you that the soul or the psyche of every human, this is our immaterial mind. Not to be confused with the brain. The brain is the physical part, the mind is the immaterial part. And it's there in the immaterial mind, which sometimes we call the heart, where we find our affections and our aversions. Our mind also includes our depraved desires as well as our lustful imaginations. And, it's, and, and with all that being the case, you know, Paul here is encouraging us to set our minds on the things of God. Let's consider how uh, Paul explains it here in Romans chapter 8. If you would look with me there at verse 5. Here Paul declares, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of what? The flesh. The flesh but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be Christian. Listen, if you're setting your mind on sinful things, then you're probably going to act upon those sinful desires. And in this way, our carnal cravings can keep us from being completely consecrated while we're here in this world as the fleshly lusts that war against our soul continue to bring us back into bondage. With that being the case, Paul encouraged us to stop focusing our minds on the things of the flesh. Quit singing those songs that glorify sex. Quit watching those movies that fill your minds with pornographic images. Quit focusing your attention on those things that will only bring you back into bondage. And instead, we ought to be setting our minds on the things of the Spirit so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And with this as the goal, I want you to flip forward a few chapters to Romans chapter 12. Here we find Paul. He's putting it as plainly as you possibly can. As you arrive there in Romans chapter 12, I want to focus your attention beginning at verse one. Here Paul declares, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, Acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here in these verses, we find Paul. He's encouraging every Christian to realize that uh, the the Christian who wants to be completely consecrated must be transformed. And and I've pointed it out many times before, and I'll I'll continue to as well we all want transformation of some form. You know, we, we all want the transformation that comes from a, a diet or, or exercise or a makeover or, you know, a nip and a tuck or, or, or there's people who are now going in for full-on surgeries where they're getting body parts cut off because they want to be transformed into another gender and these sorts of things. We all want some sort of transformation because there's something within us that knows that we're not right, that there's something imperfect about us And so we seek out some sort of transformation to make us feel right. And it's important to understand that it's the word of God that does that. The word of God brings true transformation. The Christian who wants to be completely consecrated must be transformed by the renewing of our mind that comes from the word of God. And we must be sanctified in the depths of our soul as we allow the word of God to transform the way we think. And then as our immaterial mind is being aligned with the word of God, that's how the consecrated Christian then is able to present their bodies to the Lord as a living sacrifice as we set out to serve our Savior. Now, this brings us to our third and final point because, listen, the Christian who is being completely consecrated has not only received a sanctified spirit and we've not only been sanctified in the depths of our soul by the power of God's word, But the Christian who is being completely sanctified or consecrated will then be able to serve our Savior with a sanctified soma. Now, now what do I mean by this? I'd like you to make your way back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where we find Paul continuing to describe the complete consecration of every Christian. And if you would look with me again here at 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. Here again, Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we take uh, another look at this verse, we can see here that the complete consecration of the Christian, well, it includes the body. And that word body, which is found there in the middle of this verse, well, it's translated from the Greek word soma. Just to be clear, the Greek word soma, it refers to the physical body, which is distinct from the soul and the spirit. Therefore, there should be no doubt that the Christian is not only being sanctified spiritually, and the Christian is not only being sanctified soulishly, but we're also being sanctified physically as the God of peace consecrates us completely. In this way, the physical body of the born again believer is being sanctified for the service of our Savior. Now to further grasp the way that our Soma is being sanctified for the service of the Lord, we ought to consider the encouragement that Paul presented to the Christians in Rome. So hold your place here in 1 Thessalonians and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 6. As you make your way to the 6th chapter of Romans, I want to take a moment to point out that it's our physical body that enables us to accomplish the things in our heart. So there's this immaterial aspect of who we are. There's the spirit and the soul, and and within all of the the immaterial uh, aspects of, of our being, you know, there's thoughts and dreams and imaginations, and and the spirit of God is leading our spirit and these sorts of things. But but yet th- this still has to be walked out or accomplished physically. Otherwise, it just remains immaterial. So there's the immaterial aspect of who we are, which then must be accomplished in the material world and that's where our body comes into play. Knowing that our body is able to accomplish sinful things that are dreamt up in our immaterial uh, uh, world, uh, we need to be sanctified, physically speaking. We need a sanctified spirit and soul and we need a sanctified body which is ready to walk in obedience with the Lord. I want to consider how Paul puts it here in Romans chapter 6. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 11. Here Paul declares, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the believers at the church there in Rome to realize that the consecrated Christian who is being sanctified in spirit and in soul should also be sanctified in their soma as we present the members of our mortal bodies, or or in other words, our body parts, as instruments of righteousness set apart for the service of our Savior. Simply put, the body of the born-again believer should be used for the glory of God. I like the way that Paul put it in 2 Timothy chapter 2. It's there where he informs Pastor Timothy that the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Christian, if you're his, he knows it. But then he says this, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Ouch. Are you a Christian? Paul says, depart from iniquity. Do you name the name of Christ? Depart from iniquity. And then he goes on to drill his point home in this way. Look at verse 20. In a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Our bodies, which are being compared to vessels in the house of our master, could be used for different purposes. Just consider your own home for a moment. I'm guessing within your own home you have different vessels that are used for different things. You know, you have your paper plates and you got your fine china, right? I'm sure that we have different vessels that are made of porcelain. Some porcelain vessels are used for clean purposes and some porcelain vessels used for other purposes. So, yeah, we all might be in the master's house, but we get to determine whether we're porcelain being used for this purpose or that purpose. It's important to understand that the Christian who continues to live a life of dishonor, the Christian who continues to dishonor their bodies with the filth of this world, they will fail to be completely consecrated while we're here in this world and therefore not much use for the master beyond the the purposes that he has uh, for making examples of sinning Christians, right? Conversely, the Christian who will depart from iniquity... They will also be cleansed and consecrated as the master of the house prepares them for every good work. Now, which are you? Are you departing from iniquity? Are you presenting your members, the members of your mortal body as instruments of righteousness to God? Or are you still presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness? Do you continue to engage in the sins that so easily ensnare us as the Lord you know, continues to use you as, as an example of how not to follow Jesus by faith? If so, then I encourage you to realize that the Christian who wants to be consecrated completely while we're here in this world, we must depart from iniquity so that we can be sanctified and useful for the master prepared for every good work. With this as the goal, let's take a closer look at the encouragement that Paul presented back in First Thessalonians chapter 5. And as you arrive there in First Thessalonians 5, I just want to take another look beginning at verse 23. Here again, Paul declares, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. And here in these verses, Paul is helping his audience to understand that the God of peace is actually the one who is able to sanctify us, spirit, soul, and Soma. And not only is he able, but he's faithful to do it. He's able to do it. That's good news. But he's also faithful to do it. That's even better news. If I said he's able to do it, but we're not so sure that he will. You know, okay, you know, that's not great news because he might not. But listen, he's able and faithful to do it. And it's for this reason that Paul assured the Christians in Philippi that they could be confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Isn't that great news? God's not only able, but he's faithful to complete the work that he began in us. And while it's true that the God of peace is going to completely consecrate every Christian spirit, soul, and soma, it's also true that those who are being sanctified will also be preserved, blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word preserved which is found there in verse 23. Well, it's actually translated from a Greek word which speaks of that which is attended to carefully. We're being preserved or attended to carefully by the God who plans to present us blameless before the Lord Jesus Christ. And what this means is that the God of peace is going to help us every step of the way. Isn't that good to know? He's not only promised to complete this work, but he's promised to preserve us as he helps us every step of the way. And that's good news for the obedient believer. And that's difficult news for those who continue to want to rebel. If you continue to wrestle with God regarding your consecration, he's going to get you there you're just not going to like the trip. You're going to be consecrated. You just might not like the cleansing process. So your choice. You can go with the Lord easily and obediently or you can go kicking and screaming. But those who go kicking and screaming, well, you're probably going to walk with a limp at the end of the night. And so it's just, Easier to go along obediently, amen. At the same time, as we consider the way that he's going to preserve us blamelessly before Christ Jesus, it's important to realize that this is not a promise that our physical body will not decay. The process of physical decay will continue until the day of our demise. According to Paul, our earthly body is decaying while our inner person is being renewed day by day. At the same time, though, we can rejoice in knowing that we will eventually receive glorified bodies in the presence of our Savior. And to prove my point, I want to consider the way that Paul described the resurrection of the dead. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There Paul informs us that the body is sown in corruption. It is raised In in incorruption, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, speaking of Christ Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Here in these verses we find Paul, he's helping the Christians there in Corinth to understand that there's coming a day when this body that that we've been given here in this world will finally be sown in corruption. And listen, if the Lord tarries, then we're all going to arrive at the day when this body is finally buried into the earth. Because this body under the curse cannot live forever. And much like the agricultural seeds that produce new life, our bodies, which are sown into the soil of this earth, will eventually be transformed into spiritual bodies, which will forever be completely consecrated for the glory of God. And listen, as strong as you might think you are, and as powerful as you think you are, and you know, I hear uh, you know, uh, young teenage you know, boys at youth camp Uh, Last week, just, you know, glorying in their youthful strength. And, you know, you hear all about girl power and these sorts of things. And listen, we are weak. We are all just weak beings trying to survive. I'll prove my point. COVID-19. little bitty virus and everybody's like, I can't leave my house for two years. Yeah, a little bitty virus scared everybody. We are weak. And this body will be sown in corruption in its weakness. But in the resurrection, those who are consecrated unto Christ will be raised with power. We're going to have powerful bodies as we stand in the presence of our Savior. Isn't that great news? It's great news for the future. What about today? What about today? We still have bodies that are sick and hurting. And I, how many here woke up this morning with just pain? Anybody here just wake up with? You don't have to raise your hands, but I know you woke up with pain. I don't even have to. You know, you don't. You don't have to tell me. You know, some of us woke up with you know a headache. Some of us woke up with back pains. You know, some of us, you know got to the mirror, and we're like, oh, you know, just, you know, this face again. You know, it's painful. And so what do we do until we receive these new, powerful, glorified bodies? Well... Paul answers the question in the final verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he declares, when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Is there coming a day when we're going to finally receive glorified bodies which are infinitely powerful and and eternally uh, uh, free from, from sickness and sorrow? Yes. But until that day comes, be steadfast. Be immovable and always abound in the work of the Lord. Our mortal bodies will continue to decay until our dying day. Yet it's also true that the Christian who is consecrated today will use their physical strength, the little bit of strength that we have in this world, we will use it to serve our Savior each and every day. And in this way, we we will become those believers who are steadfast and immovable as we abound in the work of the Lord. Now, with this as the goal, I encourage you to remember the, the body of every believer belongs to the Lord. This was precisely the point that Paul was making in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's there where he declares, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Christian, listen, the the Lord Jesus, he redeemed us with the blood that he shed on Calvary. He paid the price for our salvation. Therefore, Christian, we belong to him when you get up every day and get dressed, you're putting clothes on a body that doesn't belong to you. You're putting clothes on a body that belongs to God. How does he want you to dress? When you're going out and and doing your things that you do with your physical body all day long, that body's not yours. It belongs to God. Are you doing the things that he wants you to do? Or are you just doing the things that you want to do? If you're a Christian, then you've become a servant of our Savior. And and we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We've become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we belong to him. And it's for this reason that the consecrated Christian will want to glorify God with the way that we use our bodies to serve our Savior. Therefore, those who are completely consecrated will glorify God with our body because our body belongs to God. Now, as we begin to wrap up this study, it's crucial for every Christian to realize that the Lord has a plan to consecrate us completely. And he wants to help us to become those believers who are sanctified and useful for our master as he prepares us for every good work. And with this as the goal, I remind you, the Christian who is completely consecrated has received a sanctified spirit, which enables us to establish a spiritual connection with the Spirit of God who wants to guide us. The Christian who is completely consecrated is also being sanctified in the depths of our soul in this way, the Lord transforms us by renewing our minds by the power of his word so that we can begin to discover what his will is for our lives. Finally, the Christian who is being completely consecrated will have a sanctified soma, uh, which uh, it means that our mortal bodies are set apart for the service of our Savior. And as we look forward to the day when we will finally receive our glorified bodies, Well, until that day, we can rejoice in knowing that the God of peace will continue to sanctify us, spirit, soul, and soma, and he will accomplish this work until the day when we are Christians who are completely consecrated in the presence of our Savior, Christ Jesus. Let's pray.